I had to bring my water. It gets kind of dry up here sometimes. I guess that's what it's supposed to be at AA things, huh? Good evening, everybody. I am Skip Lloydhuyser, and I'm very, very glad to be here. I'm a very grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups. And I want to, first of all, thank Lloyd and all of you for inviting me. It would be much more sincere if I did it at the end of my talk, but I might forget, so I want to do it first. Um, as you can, I, I, I looked pretty calm sitting there, didn't I? Well, I wasn't, and I'm not. Um, this isn't my favorite thing to do, but it always is um, an honor to be asked to speak. And um, it's my turn, so I'm going to do it. I'm not supposed to be here, you know. This is not how I had my life planned. Now, I don't know how I had my life planned, but I don't think it included standing up here and telling you the stupid things I did in my life and then tell you how grateful I am for having done them and for having been here. But that's not all I'm going to tell you. It's what it used to be like, what happens, and what it's like now. Um, and the used to be is getting farther and farther and farther away. Um, we've had, we had a discussion recently um, at the delegates meeting, in fact. Uh, it came out that some of our, the last couple of books that Ellen Nunn put out, um, they kind of combined people's sharings, um, and we did not know this. And at first it was um, a lot of anger. Uh, one of the trustees said she felt like she wanted to find out who did it and take it out and hang them up by their toes. And um, we talked about it a little bit and we, you know, people were saying it's my story and I want my story told the way it is. And I got to thinking about it a little bit more, and I thought, I don't even know if I know my story. I know what I thought happened. I know what I remember thinking happened. But I don't know if that's what happened. Um, I remember during one year when we lived in Torrington, um, Looking back, it seemed like less strength all the time. All the time. And a few years later, I got out a um, box. We had played a lot of um, cribbage. <laughs> See, I didn't even remember what we played. We'd played a lot of cribbage, and I got this box out, and we had kept score on the lid of the box, and we'd played 167 games of cribbage. Now, he couldn't have been drinking all the time and still played 167 games of cribbage, so I don't really know whether I know what happened. I know when he tells the story, I think that's not the way I remembered it. So I don't know if any of us know, but I'll tell you what I think I know what happened. Um, and my favorite part of the story, or the favorite part of my story is what happened and what it's like now. But I know that I like to identify with someone. If I identify with someone, I will listen to them talk. If I don't, um, it maybe kind of goes beside me. Um, I did not come from an alcoholic home. It was not a perfect home by any means, but um, what home is? But I did not come from an alcoholic home. I w but I was also not a stranger to drinking. Um, our family had beer around and whiskey, and, and uh, the men would get together and play cards, and the women would sit and talk, and the kids would play, you know, and everything. So I was not afraid of alcohol. But I did not know that alcohol could cause a problem. 
I had never heard of anybody talking about people drinking too much. I don't remember seeing people um, that I thought they had drank too much. Um, it, it was just, you know, um, like coffee or water or tea. Some people drank and, and some people didn't. So um, when I was in high school, I had not drank because it was against the law. As far as I know, that's the only reason. Uh, I think from the very beginning, I was pretty much of a rule follower. I didn't remember, didn't you know, uh, do everything my mother and father told me to, but I was pretty much of a rule follower. And when I met this young man, I knew that from time to time he drank, but he didn't drink when he was with me, so it didn't make any difference. Uh, we ended up getting married, and. Um, um, we weren't quite of age, but uh, that didn't seem to be a problem. Um, and he drank, and uh, I started to drink along with him. Uh, he drank more than I did, but I didn't think that was a problem. Um, in the first couple of years we were married, we really had a lot of fun. I had said that we had our courtship after we got married because he had been in the service for two years and I had gone to college for two years before we got married and we didn't really have that time. And we had a lot of fun. We went to a lot of parties. Uh, we went to a lot of dances, um, things like that. Um, we didn't have a family right away. Um, and we continued to uh, pretty much do this party thing. Some of the people that we ran around with were starting to have families and settle down, and I really thought they were getting a little bit boring um, because we still had that freedom. Um, after four years of marriage, we did have our first child. And um, I had been waiting for this and praying for this and so on, and that's when I started some of these expectations. Um, I had this expectation of mommy and daddy and baby and we would stay home and, and we were a happy little family. Well, mommy and baby stayed home, but daddy didn't stay home. And um, I don't know that the drinking changed, but it started becoming the problem that I didn't know it was going to be. And as you know, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. Um, Probably the biggest problem started by the time we had moved to Scotts Bluff. Um, he had had some surgery, and I, um, it either affected his thinking or his drinking. I'm not sure which. <laughs> but both of them affected me. Um, I don't really think that I was trying so much to keep him from drinking. I was trying to keep him happy. I was, um, I did not like his anger and I did not like his actions when he was angry. And so I was trying to keep him happy. And in trying to keep him happy, I had to try and control not only me, the children, the rest of the family, the neighbors, anyone who he happened to come in contact with. And that's a pretty big order. Um, in trying to keep him happy, of course, I tried to do what he told me to do or told me what the problem was. I would say, I would, you know, why don't you come home? Why? What am I doing? What, what can I change? And so he'd tell me, and I'd change it. One of the things he mentioned was my housekeeping. It wasn't good. You know, he didn't want to live in that. So then I became a better housekeeper. And then he decided that it wasn't comfortable to come home because everything was so neat and clean and he was afraid to move around. That's just an example of, of, you know, trying to find out what the problem was and fix it. I, I think Al-Anons have the disease of fixing. We're trying to be fixers all of the time. Some of the dumb things I did, <coughs> since I promised you, um, the first was, not the first, but the first I'm going to tell you, uh, <laughs> was when we lived in Shadron. And... Um, 
at that time, he was working in Scott's Bluff. And he would leave early Monday morning and um, not come back until Friday afternoon. And we had two children at this time, a boy and a girl. And um, he would leave on Friday morning, on Monday morning, and we had the week alone. And then Friday, mor- Friday evening, he would uh, come back into town. And he usually got into town, I don't know, 5, 5.30. And um, our house was about two houses off of the highway, which he came down. And as he came into town, he honked to let me know he was in town. And he was on his way down to the American Legion Club. And I thought, isn't he a considerate husband to honk to let me know he's in town? Are you getting the idea who the sickest one was? (laughs) When we moved to Scott's Bluff, uh, he was working on the missile sites at that time. And I remember one night he was supposed to um, be out of town all night. They had a meeting and he was not going to be home. And about midnight the phone rang and um, he said, will you come get me? And I said, well, where are you? And, well, he was out in the country and um, uh, was headed home because, as I remember, you know, there was kind of a wild party and he didn't want to be involved in that sort of thing. And he hadn't been drinking, you know, or anything, but um, he had rolled the pickup and wanted me to come get him. Well, now, I don't know if you know what it's like south of Scott's Bluff, between Scott's Bluff and Kimball, but there's nothing there. This was at midnight. I was supposed to come get him. I was supposed to go this way and then that way and this way and that way. I piled the two kids in the car. I was about um, seven months pregnant with number three, and it was midnight, and I was headed out to try and find him, and I got lost. And I also dawned, it also dawned on me, I didn't have much gas in the car. And I, so I finally stopped at a farmhouse to try and find out where to go. Um, and also ask if he could give me enough gas to get there. But I had to go. He told me to come pick him up. And that he had not been drinking. And I had to go. After I got in the program, now I would never do it. You know, stay in the ditch or whatever, but I'm not coming out there in daylight probably, much less the middle of the night. But I absolutely had to go. I had no thought of not going. Uh, it wasn't too much longer after that that um, we did find the program. Um, I had no clue that... Uh, he was an alcoholic. Maybe the term alcoholism kind of entered my subconscious, but I didn't really examine it. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, I had one friend that I that I tried to talk to a couple of times. Her husband drank with less uh, sometimes, and. And when I just couldn't stand it anymore, I, I did kind of, of talk to her, you know, and, and say something about, you know, what was going on. And she said something like, well, my husband started drinking too much when we got married, and I put my foot down, and that was the end of that. I couldn't identify with that. I knew I couldn't put my foot down, and that was the end of that. Somehow I knew that. Um, and so I crawled back into my shell again and, and didn't talk about it. The neighbors, I didn't talk to the neighbors about it. I don't know if they noticed what time his pickup came home, but um, I didn't talk to my family about it. I didn't want anybody to know that something was going on that, that I did, that I was, could not handle, could not cure, could not fix something. But the day finally came when I could not take it anymore. Um, 
it wasn't the big things. It wasn't the big crises. It wasn't the worst thing that had ever happened. It was just finally that day after day after day frustration of not being able to fix it. And I felt like I was going stark raving mad. And there would be nobody to take care of the kids. We had three children by that time. The youngest one was nine months old. And he had not been working. And um, the night before, um, he had come home um, early and and, um, we'd eaten. And then he wanted me to go out to the bar with him. And and I did go because it was easier to go than than not to go. And um, by morning, it was just, I, I can't live this way anymore. And when I got up with the kids, I thought, I have to leave. I, I don't have anything else to do. I have to leave. But I didn't want to leave until he got up so I could tell him that I was going to leave. So he got up in the morning, and if I remember right, by the time he came out of the bedroom, he had his jacket on, and he was ready to go uptown again. And I said, before you leave, I want to tell you the kids and I won't be here when you get back. And kind of nice talking first. I get to tell this story. (laughs) (laughs) And so we had um, a little discussion about... um, what was going on, who was at fault, um, who was supporting this family anyway. No one. (laughs) I wasn't working, he wasn't working, you know. And pretty soon he sat down by the table and picked up the phone book and looked through it and picked up the phone and dialed. This was how long ago it was, not punch, 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 this way. And I was angry. I thought, this is the most important discussion we've ever had, and he's making a phone call. Who in the world is he calling? And I heard him say, is this Alcoholics Anonymous? And you could have blown me over with a feather. I I had no idea that there was an Alcoholics Anonymous in Scottsdale, Nebraska. And he talked to this guy for a while and hang up the phone. And uh, he said, um, Bill's going to come over and see me this afternoon about 2 o'clock. So we quickly had some lunch, and I picked up the toys and got the kids quiet. You know, I wanted to make a good impression. And um, he went out to the refrigerator and got a beer out of the refrigerator and started drinking it. I know now he needed it badly, you know, but at the time I thought, my gosh, what is he doing? If he starts drinking, they're going to come walking in the door and they say, we can't help him. He's been drinking. So I had to fix it. So I drank the beer myself. (laughs) I've never had the courage to ask Bill what he thought when he got there. (laughs) But by the time he got there, he said he was going to be there at 2, and he didn't come until 4, and I was not too impressed about that. But I was very pleased to see him come. And um, he took less, and he said, Come on, I have some friends I want you to meet. And um, they left. I have no idea what I did that afternoon. It's an absolute blank. I had no, I have no idea. But I do know that you could not have made me leave then. Our problems were over. He had called Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything was going to be beautiful. Our problems were over. Bill brought him back and um, said they'd, uh, he'd be back in the evening. And so Bill and Jim came back in the evening. And uh, I'd made a pot of coffee. Lessa told me to make a pot of coffee, so they'd drink a lot of coffee. So I'd made a pot of coffee, and we sat there visiting, and I, and I learned a few things that night. One thing, I, after we finished that pot of coffee, I put it away, and pretty soon Bill said, where's the coffee pot? And I thought, boy, they do drink coffee. 
We went through three pounds of coffee. This was on a Friday. We went through three pounds of coffee that evening, or not that evening, that weekend. We couldn't afford it either, but um, because a lot of people came to visit. A um, couple of other things happened that evening. Um, Bill said to me, he said, do you think that he's going to make it? And I said, oh, yeah. And then I said, is that what I'm supposed to think? <laughs> I wanted his approval, too. And then Jim said to Les, he said, don't let anything get in the way of your sobriety. He said, if you can't stay sober with the job you have, you have to quit. Well, he didn't have a job, so that wasn't a problem. And then he said, if you can't stay sober with the wife you have, get rid of her. And I didn't like that. <laughs> now, that morning I was walking out the door, but that evening I did not like that. But I did learn to love these people. Like I say, the we, we had people coming in all of the time. Um, it, it was kind of like it was uh, put on the grapevine, which is probably what I thought the grapevine was at that time. Um, that we've got a live one here and, and go talk to him. Because we had couples that came over and, and they uh, brought big, the big book. I read it and he didn't. Um, he told me later he shook too much. He couldn't read it. But he did eventually. I didn't read the hundred, first 164 pages. I read those stories. And um, it, it helped me to know I wasn't the only one. See, I was still interested in his problem. I didn't. I didn't have a problem. I mean, I was fine. Um, as, as long as he was okay, then I was okay. So I didn't know that this was a pro- that I had a problem. And it took me a long, long, long time to find out that there was anything wrong with me. Um, the group in those days was very small, but they were very close. Uh, we got together in people's homes. We had picnics, uh, things like this. At a picnic that um, following summer, uh, or that summer, um, there were some um, of the wives that were talking about getting a group started that was called Al-Anon. Um, some of you have been to our jamboree, and they had had the jamboree uh, shortly before we um came into the program and some people from Denver had been over and, and asked if they had Alan on and they said no they didn't and talked to them and, and they were sending for some literature and so on and so in October why they started having Alan on meetings and they had them in the homes every other week and so they called everybody to tell people you know whose homes they were going to be in so I did what any good alcoholic's wife does. They called me to invite me to go to Al-Anon, and, and I asked my spouse, should I go to Al-Anon? And he said, oh, I don't think so. He said, I've heard about this Al-Anon, and it's nothing but a gossip session, and you're too good for that. So I don't think you should go. Well, I couldn't tell him what he said, you know, so I had to make up excuses for why I couldn't go to Al-Anon. And the kid was sick, or I'd been to bed late the night before, or I'd had a headache, or something. Well, eventually I got tired of lying about why I couldn't go to Al-Anon. And I thought, well, there are probably some people there who don't know how to live with this problem. And... I've lived with the problem. I can go help them. So I'll go to Al-Anon to go help them. And that'll be 30 years next May. And then that's not why I am in Al-Anon, to help you people. I am here to help me. Um, Al-Anon started slow in Scotts Bluff. Uh, and, and probably we did what, how a lot of groups got started. Um, we'd have a circle of chairs, probably five or six people, and we sat and talked about what it used to be like, mainly. Finally, we did get some of the Al-Anon books and, and maybe read a chapter and, and talk about it and so on. Um, 
Then another gal started coming to Al-Anon that, that I had worked with, and she and I decided we needed a meeting every week. Once every other week wasn't enough. And so we started having a meeting every week, and some of them in the group were really upset. I mean, this is going to split the group. Some of them are going to go to the regular meeting, and some of them are going to go to the off week, and this is just really going to upset things. But we continued because we felt like we wanted a meeting every week. And eventually people forgot whether it was the regular meeting or the off week and started coming every week. Um, that group is still going um, in Scottsbluff. Uh, our group is a spin-off of that group. And another group was spinned off from ours and another one from that one, you know, and so on. And that's how Al-Anon grows. Uh, and we have quite a few meetings uh, now, and we don't worry that uh, if a new group starts or a new meeting starts, that um, it's going to take away from ours. We know it will will add, and I'm really grateful for that. Probably I got started in service fairly early because there weren't that many of us to do anything. Um, I mentioned the jamboree. Uh, that probably was one of the first things was to, uh, they asked me if I'd come type name tags at the jamboree. And um, I, was, I was really pleased to do it. Part of the reason they asked me probably was because I had a typewriter. But I was glad to do that because, see, I had a table between you and me, and I was still a of you, and so I couldn't get too close. Uh, also, I didn't know how to talk to you, and this way, if I was at the registration table, I had things to talk about. You know, I could tell you how much it cost and <laughs> what to put on your ask, what to put on your name tag, and so on. Because I would fear was such a big part of my life, and I think this is why service is so important to me because. If it hadn't been for service, I would have been able to stay in my little cocoon. Um, being forced out among you forces me to do things like this that I wouldn't, uh, and I, if I don't do them, I don't face the fear and I don't walk through it and, and then I don't get the enjoyment and the pleasure. Uh, I sometimes forget to tell that we did have a fourth child after we came in the program. Um, shortly after uh, we came in the program, I found out I was pregnant. The first three that I had, I had planned. All by myself, I planned them. I didn't get them all by myself, but I planned them all by myself. But this one was not planned. Just all of a sudden, I was the youngest one was 11 months old, and, and I was pregnant. And... Um, I was kind of, whew, why is this happening now, you know? Uh, we were just maybe kind of getting on our feet financially, you know, and so on. Well, I found out why that one came during that first year of sobriety. You see, when I'm pregnant, I feel very good about me. Um, I'm doing something no one else has done. I get a little bit self-centered and selfish and so on. And this is what my spouse needed, was for me to be self-centered and selfish and keep my mind on me instead of on how many meetings he was going to, whether he was reading the book, whether he was talking to people, whether he was going 12-step calls and so on. And I've often said I encourage all of my pigeons to get pregnant the first year of their husband's sobriety. And I only know of one who has done it. And that was by mistake just like mine was. But, um, but I'm very, very grateful that um, that came along. I've said we had the first AA baby in Scott's Bluff. I don't know if that's right or not, but um, I say so. That AA baby is going to turn 30 years old in just a few days. <laughs> and um, that's kind of scary. Um, but talking about service, um, I, I, I would not have the growth. And, and, of course, you're all service people. That's why you're here. Um, I would not have had the growth that I have had. And it is not something that I set out to do. 
Uh, now, if you set out to do it, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I did not have the courage to do those things. Uh, my group did. Um, our delegate came out at one time and said we should have a group representative. And they all looked at me. And I was kind of like, why are you looking at me? You know, I've got all of these little kids. And the delegate said, well, you don't have to go to meetings. If you write letters, that'll be fine. Well, I don't think I ever wrote any letters, but I don't remember them writing me any letters either. But I think someplace in Nebraska archives, I think my name is still written down there. Because I looked it up one time. Well, for one thing, they had my real name, which not many people know. And the other thing, I, I think they had their last name sp- misspelled, which is very normal. So I don't know if they knew who I was. And then we went a long time, and we still didn't know anything about group representatives or anything like that. Am I still on? Sounds different. Um, but um, we did finally elect a group representative, and then somebody else, and then somebody else. And um, Les had gotten started uh, going to area meetings, and so I thought, well, I kind of think I'd like to be group representative. You know, he was going to meetings anyway. We were meeting together. I might just as well go. I wasn't elected. So when I want something, I don't get it. But then that person moved away, and I was elected group representative. So I went to one meeting, and um, our area chair at that time said, well, your district does not have a district representative. You need to call a meeting of the district of all of the GRs and um, elect someone a district representative. Well, I knew the minute I called a district meeting who was going to be elected, you know. I knew that going in. But I did it anyway, and I was elected district representative. And so I served both at the same time. Um, I did not do a real good job. My group was not particularly interested in hearing a group representative report. I'd come back from assembly, and then I'd say, can I have five minutes to give a report? Well, if you make it quick. And so the next time, I just didn't tell them. I'd punish them. And we probably didn't have hardly any district meetings or anything like that, but I at least I at least was willing, and I, I tried to carry through sometimes. Um, during that time, too, our, um, during my term as district representative, uh, this same person who had gotten me into DR and so on said, your district has never had the Al-Anon reunion. I think it's time for you to have the Al-Anon reunion. And by that time, I was having a little harder time saying no. So I said, okay, we'll have the Al-Anon reunion. Now, we're a very small district, and we don't have a lot of groups, and we don't have a lot of people. But we did put on the reunion. Uh, we had it in North Platte. It wasn't in held in our district, and there were probably about five or six from our group that did the whole thing, Um, but we did it, and we had a lot of fun, and we've got some people in our group that are still in our group because they worked on um, putting that together, just like some of you have done uh, to put this together, and... um, I know one of them talks about, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just kept doing what Skip told me to do. And today that person is our delegate. Um, and, and so it, it, it just gives me the shivers to, you know, see what, what can happen. Also because of that, I was up in front of the assembly giving um, reports on this and that and so on and um, um, probably had a little more exposure to the assembly than some people. And so this very same person again started talking to me about standing for delegate. And at the same time, Les was talking to me about standing for delegate. And when they first started talking to me, I absolutely would get a sharp pain 
in the pit of my stomach. It was so painful to even think about doing something like that. But the more they talked about it, the pain went away a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. And when the time came for the election, I said, okay, I'll put my name in. And I was elected delegate for Nebraska. It was in 1984. And that three years was probably the most wonderful service I have ever had. Um, I, I heard a delegate from Washington say one time, I have never felt so loved when I w- as when I was delegate. And I think that explains it to me. I had never felt so loved. I felt loved by the people in my area. I felt loved by everybody at conference. I felt loved by the World Service Office people and, and everyone. It, it was just a magnificent time. And I also then served as area chair. <clears throat> I felt like they'd spent a little bit of money on me, so I needed to give it back to them a little bit. And when I had served those six years, then I retired. Except the same person keeps popping up in my life and mentioned to me, why don't you put your name in for um, trustee? regional trustee. Your Audrey Budd had just, was just finishing her um, term as regional trustee, her second term. And um, I, I can't say it was quite as scary or quite as painful this time, but it was still kind of out of the realm of belief. It was kind of like I've I, I just can't imagine myself in that position. And besides that, I had gone back to work after um, um, staying at home with my children for 22 years. I had gone back to work, and um, I thought, well, I, I don't think they will allow me to take this time off because when you're a trustee, you go to New York four times a year for board meetings, and I don't think they will allow me to take that much time off. So that that seemed like a, a reasonable out. My we I worked in a detached office for, as they say on Wheel of Fortune, a major company, <laughs> and. Um, my supervisor was coming out, and I thought, well, I'll talk to her, and, and I'll say, well, they have asked me to do this and, and tell her what it entails and so on. And she'll say, oh, well, I'm afraid, you know, that would be more time than, than you'd be able to take, and, and then I can go back and I can tell them. I can't do it. So when my supervisor came out, I told her, and she said, oh, she said, we encourage our people to be involved in civic affairs, And she said, besides that, she said, we have a company policy where if you're involved in in a, um, like a nonprofit organization, she said, they have grants for money. You can put in for money and they they might get a grant. I haven't put in for the grant yet. (laughs) So I did allow my name, put in my resume. But I really was not was not really too concerned about it because there were several people running and I knew I would not get it. And the our delegate at that time, I was her service sponsor. And um, so when she went to conference, why when I had been at conference, we had um, elections on Tuesday night for regional trustee. And I thought, and uh, Anne had said, I will call you either way. And I thought, well, Tuesday night's my regular meeting night, you know, and she, and she can call while either while I'm at the meeting or after I get home, and this will be nice. And so on Monday night, I had gone out to the mall, and I came home, and Anne, and Les said, Anne called, and you're supposed to call her in Connecticut. And I thought, well, this is her first year as delegate, you know, she's probably a little upset about something or nervous about something or something like that. So I called her. And we chatted for a little bit, and she said, are you sitting down? And I said, am I supposed to be? (laughs) And she said, you've just been elected our regional trustee. And it, it took me a long time 
to probably about two years to <laughs> really believe it. Um, it. It did start very quickly about a week later. That was in 1990, and, and that was Seattle International Convention, and we were having our first board, my first board meeting there. About a week later, um, Myrna, our executive director, called and asked if we had reservations for international, and I said yes. We were staying at the Holiday Inn, and she said, "Would you object to?" Canceling those reservations and staying at the what were we the Hilton or something? I mean, would we mind? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> and um, so my first board meeting was at Seattle International. I was absolutely petrified, absolutely petrified. I felt so out of place, so. I don't belong here. I'd go to a meeting and I'd come back to the room and say, I can't do it. And Les would push me back out the door again. You can do it. And it took me a full year, a little over a year. It was the October meeting of my second year before I felt like I belonged there. And I thank God today that I hung in and kept going and kept going in spite of my fear, in spite of my insecurity, in spite of my, what am I doing here? Uh, I don't know that I helped Alan on it all, but oh boy, did the experience help me. Uh, today, I feel like I could be a really good regional trustee, and I have three weeks left. <laughs> and I'm really going to have to pack it in three weeks. <laughs> Um, but that's the way, that's the way the program goes. About the time you feel really comfortable and you're kind of, hey, I like this. I think I know how to do this. Why then you move on to something else. Um, and, and I've had a lot of really, really good experiences. Um, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, but it's definitely not anything I plan. Um, I have grown so much and, and I, I, I know, I know I've changed. <laughs> uh, people tell me, but I, but I know I've changed. But there have been so many things because of that growth that I've been able to handle that I, I can't say I wouldn't have been able to handle otherwise, but it would have been so much more painful than it was. Um, probably one of the big things, I, I told you I had gone back to work um, and I did not go back to work doing the same thing that I had done before. I had been a teacher before um, w- before I had my family, our family, my planned family. <laughs> um, and when I went back to work, why I um, was no longer qualified. And um, but I kind of wanted to do office work, and uh, so the. I saw this ad in the paper, and uh, my oldest daughter was uh, working in a bank at that time, and and I said, uh, they've advertised for a clerk typist. I said, what is that? And she said, well, you can do it, Mom. And I thought, well, I'll call for an um, interview, you know, kind of get some practice. I'm going to have to practice on this for a little bit. So I called, and I went for the interview, and pretty soon they called me back for another interview, and pretty soon they called me back to take a typing test, and they offered me the job. And this was just supposed to be a trial run, you know. And I started working there, and I absolutely loved it. Absolutely. It started out part-time. Um, I knew that God gave me that job. Um, he gave me the program to give me enough um self-worth to be able to get the job and then the job gave me more self-worth it worked into full-time work Um, they computerized and they trained me on the computer and I absolutely loved it it paid really well it had wonderful benefits and one day they said we're closing the office in about three weeks and I'd be out of a job and I was angry. 
I mean, I wrote a letter to the company. I wrote a letter to the district manager. I talked to people, and it didn't do any good. And I was saying, and, and I know a lot of people are going through this. That's why I'm, well, I, that's not why I'm sharing it. I'm sharing it because I, ne- I need to share it. Um, and I was angry at God. Why did you give me this job and then turn around and take it away from me again? But he didn't say he gave it to me for the rest of my life. He gave it to me for almost 12 years. But that didn't mean I was going to have it for the rest of my life. But I had to go through the grieving, an absolute grieving process. The anger, the disbelief, the trying to make deals. Um, and it took a long, long time for me to have the acceptance. Today, I finally have the acceptance. But um, at the time, I did not. Um, I did um, get to retire and um, get severance pay both. They treated me very, very fairly. Um, I, I cannot say that. And I was off work for about six months before I um, went back to work again. Um, this happened in August, and, and, you know, with Christmas and so on coming up, I, I didn't really rush around. But I knew I, I liked to work. I, I knew that I wanted to do something. <coughs> I didn't care if it was full-time, um, and I was allowed to keep my insurance uh, and so on, so it didn't necessarily have to be full benefits and so on. And so I was just saying to God, okay. You show me. You gave me a job one time, and it was the best thing that could have happened to me. You can do it for me again. So I put in applications and applications and applications, and I think I had only one interview out of the whole thing. And one day a friend of mine called, a person from the program, and said, um, uh, my um, I hear that you're looking for a job, and I said, yeah, I am. And um, he said, well, um, we'd like to talk to you. Our secretary's just quit, and we'd like to talk to you. So I said, okay, and so we met for lunch. And at the same time, I had read that the halfway house in Scotts Bluff was looking for a secretary, and so I had called them up and, and asked them about it, and they were supposed to call me back. And um, I thought I'd be perfect. For that, you know, I mean, a halfway house needs an Al-Anon. There's no doubt about that. And um, and I'd been a secretary. I thought I was just perfect for it. Well, I had lunch with these other people, and they offered me the job. And I said, well, I don't know. Um, I kind of want to check out this other deal. And they said, oh, well, okay. Um I said, well, I should know by Friday. Well, the halfway house didn't call, and they didn't call, and they didn't call. And finally it got through, came through my head. You said to God, you picked me out a job. You did a good job last time. You picked me out a job. Somebody called you. They offered you a job. And you said, well, I don't know. So I called him back up and said, is that job still available? I'd like to have it. And that was a little over two years ago, and uh, and I'm still there. Um, I work for an alcoholic, and his son, who is an alcoholic, they need an Ellen on there. <laughs> the son told me during the interview, we need an Ellen on in this office. And he was right. <laughs> um it gives me the freedom, has given me the freedom to do um, my Al-Anon work. Um, when I tell them, you know, I'm going to be gone for tomorrow or I'm going to be gone next week or I have to be gone for 10 days, they let me go. You know, they maybe give me a hard time once in a while or something like that, but they let me go. It's absolutely what I needed, um, I, but I didn't think so. See, part of my problem was a gal that I used to sponsor who has moved away had this job. And I really thought I had a better job 
where I was at that time, so it felt like I was coming down. It finally dawned on me it was my pride that was being hurt. Um, and I love it now. I love it today. Um, yesterday, my daughter had called and said, what time are you going to get off work? By the way, it's, it's turned in practically a full-time job now, too. She said, what time are you going to get off work? And I said, well, I don't know. And she said, well, how do you do that? And I said, oh, well, I can get off if I want to. I just don't know when I'm going to leave. But, you know, if, if I have something I have to get off for, they let me go. And it's exactly what I need. There have been so many things. Uh, those of you who have families know that there can be a lot of problems. Um, the alcoholism has affected our family. Even though they were raised in sobriety, they were still raised with alcoholism. And alcoholism is both the mother and father, uh, whether they're both alcoholics or not. It is the disease. Um, none of our children have um, are in the program. Uh, we have one daughter who um, has said she has been is alcoholic, uh, does not go to AA, does not drink, um, but has some other problems. And none of the others um, seem to have a, a drinking problem, uh, but they don't go to Al-Anon either. Uh, I hope that they have picked up uh, some of the program from us. I don't think they can help it. There are times that there were people sitting around our dining room table eight hours a day, and they're bound to have picked up some of the program, whether they know it or not. Um, but they just really are a delight to us. We have seven grandchildren now. Uh, five of them live just right around town. Um, and, and it's just really neat to have them want to be there. Uh, I shared at the meeting this morning, it's kind of neat to be able to say, no, I'm not available either, to be able to... Um, let them know I still have my own life. Uh, sometimes it seems to be a little shock to them when mom doesn't just, you know, jump in and say, I'll do it. And it makes me feel kind of good to not have to uh, fix everything for everybody. Looks like my time's coming about up. My, the hardest part of talking is trying to figure out how to quit and where to quit. Uh, <laughs> um, this program is, is so wonderful. Um, the God that it has given me, I don't think I could have found any other place. I had a God before I came to you, but it wasn't the God that I have today. And um, the people that said, thank God for Al-Anon, and I thank Al-Anon for God, uh, is the truest thing that I have found. I had no idea how to um, live a spiritual life. I knew how to live a religious life, but I didn't know how to sp live a spiritual life. And it took all of you people to show me how to do that. I couldn't find that in the books. I couldn't find it from the, uh, from the people out there. I had to find it from you people. And for that, I am most grateful. And I'm very grateful for you being here tonight. And again, thank you. <laughs>